Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Pentagram, dedicated to Henry Foreman. In the year of the primal Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever, good whomever. Welcome to Agitators Anonymous um, podcast, episode 180-something. It is Friday, December the something or other. Who knows? Who can tell what year we are in? Um, how many years left have you got spinning around this ball of dirt, hurtling into outer space? Um, who can know? Who can tell? Anyway, in the meantime, let's entertain ourselves with some nonsense from your uh you know your favorite singer of a middling sized relatively mediocre done quite okay not so bad a uh, heavy metal singer and all that kind of thing i'm going to talk about movies today yes today is going to be the first time i actually sort of do a movie review do a movie review whatever that means i'm going to talk about napoleon but what i'm actually going to talk about is should historical movies um, try and tell the truth, or should we just accept them in the good grace they're meant? Uh, well, even though sometimes they aren't, certainly are not meant in good grace and are meant more as arms of propaganda, but I'll get into that as well. So I'm going to talk about Napoleon. I'm going to talk about uh, exactly that. I'm going to talk about um, some of the historical inaccuracies in the movie, at least as I, uh, with my small bit of research or having read a book or two or listened to a thing or two, uh, some things I observed and just kind of place the movie in the context of a, a barren, desolate kind of ice age of movie making. Um, and we could say that about almost all mainstream art, if you ask me. It sounds like a rather typical conservative position to hold, but most definitely the era of great movie making uh, when it comes to Hollywood. That has to be the 1970s, right? I mean, kind of has to be. Um, one time, one time at Bandcamp, no, one time about a decade ago, I went through um, a list, uh, which was the 100 greatest movies of the 1970s. Um, you know, Chinatown and Barry Lyndon and all this kind of stuff. Um, Taxi Driver, the list goes on. And I worked my way through almost all 100 movies as I could find them to watch and then I did it with the 80s um, you know not every movie of that 100 and slowly but surely as I examined the lists and we came to the 90s and the 2000s and well and so on and it became clear that every decade 
it would seem to me that the standard just dropped and dropped and dropped. And I think you could probably apply the same logic to mainstream music. Um, you could play this. And I mean by the mainstream, not, um, you know, the countercultural stuff that we all um, uphold, that we are the pillars of the community of, um, or alternative movie making or that kind of thing, which I'm sure underneath um, is still existing and still um, still thriving to some degree. But because, you know, I, I, you can make a movie really, if you have a very fancy phone and one of those um, kind of handheld devices that hold your phone in place, you could probably make a pretty good bloody movie at that. So the power is within regular people to make um, short underground movies or that kind of thing. But certainly when it comes to mainstream movies, um, I don't think anybody could really argue that the uh, quality of mainstream movies has just become um, a parade of cartoon movies, um, of endless slew of um, Marvel superhero movies, something I've never had any interest in. They seem to be endlessly pumped out to sort of keep people in a perpetual state of pre-adolescence. And that sort of, these kind of things, um, cartoons that clearly are or should be movies made for kids, but yet it's not kids who go and see them, it's adults. Yeah, of course, I have a sort of um, issue with all this kind of thing. That's why you saw the big contest of 23 was Oppenheimer versus Barbie. I mean, a more um, odd and surreal battle of wills and wits that sort of represented the relative polarization of society um, on a very superficial cartoonish level you could not find. But they were the big sort of movies of the year and Oppenheimer was kind of like the big mainstream serious movie of the year. Usually we have a couple of weighty war movies, Dunkirk, for example, which I'm going to talk about a little bit about later. But they're very few and far between, at least when I walk by um, a movie theatre now. And I used to make a point of going every week. Probably now it's down to once or twice a year, the kind of movies that would interest me to go and see. Um, there just are none. And all slowly but surely, just like record shops, just like venues, just like everything else that had a, a stake in the city, in my city, uh, Dublin, which was able to exist in an old sort of alternative market, um, has just kind of disappeared. Many of the smaller cinemas that were giving a screen time to, you know, that obscure Korean movie or Jim Jarmusch movie or uh, something. Yeah, just name drop that <laughs> just to throw it in like I know a little bit of what I'm talking about. Um, but I don't really. But definitely there was much more alternative cinema. There was more alternative cinemas. They've been slowly pushed and moved out because... Sadly, uh, well, of course, it's to do with real estate and gentrification and the rent going up on all of these places, the endless knocking down of buildings and the uh, erecting of um, homes and hotels and uh, fancy apartments that Dublin people cannot live in. I'm sure you see this replicated in your city. Answers on a postcard. I'm sure you do. But um, this leaves very little place for that dive bar that you used to like, that dive venue. And of course, it's the kind of people who move into these kind of areas and gentrify them who don't want the same things that were there before. Like I said, it's easier in my area to go and see. Um, I would imagine, well, I don't imagine, I know I can, judging by the fly posters you see around the place or the, the ads you see in shops, that it's probably easier to go to, um, as I said once before, flippantly and as a joke, um, you know, slam poetry, brunch and yoga on a Saturday than to go and see a rock and roll band in a dive bar. That's probably more to do with the kind of people who move into areas. We've all heard of the San Francisco effect 
um, the crazy, you know, alternative culture that existed in a city like San Francisco in the 70s and 80s. And then it gets gentrified. The IT tech people move in and realize they don't really like the kind of things that they think that they've moved in to, to support or want to live amongst. And slowly but surely, everybody just gets priced out of it. And that's what's happening in Dublin. And of course, um, small cinemas just can't compete. Uh, they can't compete with the big cinema. So when you go buy a cinema now, as I said, all I see is endless Marvel superhero nonsense. Um, and it is nonsense. Um, and, you know, cartoon movies, you know, made for, I have to try and stop saying, you know, somebody hit me up in uh, my DMs and said, dude, stop saying, you know, and now I've just said it three times. Um, sorry about that. But anyway, so the point being that Slowly but surely, things just get pushed out, pushed out, pushed out, and then they cease to exist. And then you think to yourself, I wonder, is that movie going to be shown um, here? There was the Lighthouse Cinema. There's a whole bunch of other places, and they've just all kind of slowly disappeared off the map uh, to be replaced by Marvel um, movie culture, the all synonymous mainstream. And it's very similar to what I've, you've heard me talk about before when it comes to venues, when it comes to even last week's um, rather, you know, middling podcast about heavy metal um, moving into middle age where there's no real social life associated with it. There's no socializing associated with it. And the reason for that is because bars are shut down because people just don't go to them. And sadly, one of the reasons uh, for this is that the market decides. The market decides. And if people are just not interested in something, um, then the place that's showing those movies or the place that's, you know, playing that music in a bar will just cease to exist. And everybody then in the comments can go, oh, my God, it's terrible that such a place has had to close down. And you think to yourself, well, when is the last time you went to it? When is the last time you were a patron of that establishment? Chances are it was back when you were younger and now there are no younger people to replace you. Anyway, that's a different discussion and one I think I had last week. So the podcast is, as ever, sponsored by Metal Blade Records. Follow the links in the description. Go to IndieMerch.com slash Metal Blade Records and use the promo code AA2023 and you can get 10% off your order. And you do need that uh, bastard Irish green version of the new Primordial. You do, don't you? Yeah, of course you do. So follow the links in the description. Um, I'm also at the end. If you stick around to the end, uh, this is the last week where I am supported by the band Behiach on the show an Irish band um, pre who started more in the sort of black metal vein, but the new release, listening to it, is a bit more kind of death metal. It's a kind of one-man project, and um, maybe they might start playing live. I don't really know. Would be cool. But it's good stuff, and you're going to hear a bit of a song at the end, so stick around to have a listen to that, or fast forward to the last couple of minutes, and then come back here to 9 minutes 45 seconds on the timestamp. It's up to you. So you've probably noticed that Ridley Scott, the uh, director of Napoleon has been engaged in a sort of war of words with various historians who've been critiquing his movie, basically telling them to go fuck themselves um, in no uncertain terms. And the movie itself is a it's a it's a strange, rushed sort of event. It feels sometimes very much like a made for TV movie. Some of the kind of background acting is a bit strange. You see, you know, those you know exactly what I mean when I say those footage of the battle scenes are incredible. I'll get I'll get into that. But the kind of the cheering masses and um, with their grubby faces, um, something about it remains unconvincing, and it just rushes straight through a huge uh, section of time. In obviously, a lot of people would try and take 
certain angles, certain areas of Napoleon's life. But Ridley Scott has decided to squash the whole thing into two hours, 30, 40 minutes. And it got me thinking that should movies about historical figures try and have some sort of historical accuracy? Because I suppose one of the conversations that I've been seeing about Napoleon, especially in the manosphere, um, whatever that means, it's a kind of word I've only really been introduced to in the last year or two. And there's probably people out there who listen to me who would include some of my views in the manosphere. I think what that is trying to say is that um, men who are speaking out in podcasts or on YouTube channels just trying to talk about um, rejecting the culture of victimhood and trying to be, you know, uh, keep fit even. is uh, Keeping fit is often ascribed to being part of the manosphere and is somehow portrayed as a negative thing by people who want to um, cast a shadow over that whole area of the internet. I mean, what could be wrong with keeping fit is beyond me. But however, that's what people will say. They'll use anything as a cudgel to beat you with. Um, but one of the things I was reading is that Napoleon was sort of, this version of Napoleon had been sort of lurching into this um, view of Napoleon being something of a cuckold that his character, oddly enough, is sort of a weak, a weak male character. And this sort of exactly feeds into the modern 2023, God, I forgot what year it was there, polarized tribalistic nature of modern society in that Josephine comes out of it being the strong female character and Napoleon um, comes out being the sort of, well, let's call him what the movie sort of suggests, which is this sort of simpering, um, foolhardy cook. Is there any truth to this? Well, by all accounts, the thing about Napoleon and about the history surrounding the man is that there's an awful lot of letters. There's an awful lot of um, correspondence between not only him and Josephine, but people have written a lot about the time. So quite why Ridley Scott had to sort of embellish upon the truth when the truth is almost as fantastical anyway you didn't really need to create uh, this whole other narrative um in certain areas of the storytelling but certainly it does suggest something of the lovesick puppy about the character of napoleon but he's sort of endlessly portrayed in this movie by joaquin phoenix in a very strange way almost as if he's sort of xanaxed out of it the entire time he is you know shown to fall asleep at meetings Although meetings, he would have been in his 20s at the time. He endlessly mews and moors after Josephine, um, who, by the way, in real life would have been six years older than him. But he is constantly portrayed as this sort of 50-year-old man, um, which is, of course, untrue. It places him at the beheading of Marie Antoinette, which is also untrue. He was not there. And one thing it certainly does is it, it never really gets into any of his politics. The fact that he was a sort of child of the Enlightenment. He did have all these political views. He had um, the civil code that he established. I mean, it certainly doesn't paint him as a revolutionary. The movie doesn't explain properly the situation between, um, you know, the importance of the French Revolution, which is one of the most pivotal moments in all of European history. In fact, of world history, the ending of monarchical reign, the end of um, divine right of inheritance and a republic being established. The movie never grasps at all at really explaining the political situation 
Um, the movie is far more interested in the romantic situation between Napoleon and Josephine than explaining his politics of the time, um, which you understand nothing of, because it sort of paints Napoleon as this slightly dull, backward Corsican bully. In fact, it reiterates that point several times. So I could see why people within, I suppose, the conservative element of the manosphere or whatever you want to call it, were criticizing the movie. And I could see exactly why people who were on the other side of that debate were defending uh, the positioning of Josephine and Napoleon in the movie because, of course, they have to react to everyone who on the other side reacts rather than actually considering the subject matter at hand because there is so much correspondence by, about, to and from Napoleon. But you certainly don't rise to the level that he did um, within the army and command uh, influence and power over you know huge armies and win massive battles and conquer and um, become a conquering hero for a time to this new republic without having some willpower some determination some influence and um, some energy it's a very strange movie in that Joaquin Phoenix plays this character with like super low energy like I said like almost like some sort of um the energy is super low from Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, you probably loved him in Joker. I certainly did as well. He had an air of malevolence about him. But in this movie, he's constantly portrayed as this simpering, whimpering, um, crying on the shoulder of Josephine character. The elder man chasing the younger woman. When in actuality, as I said, she was several years older, several years his senior. And he seems to age throughout the movie and she remains the same. And after their divorce, she also seems to become almost more important. But is this Ridley Scott's problem? I mean, should a movie try and tell historical accuracies? I mean, like I said, maybe it's just because things are so tribal now and they're so siloed into these areas of the culture war that they, that they take on more importance. I mean, if we look past our mind back to Braveheart, um, you remember uh, Braveheart, you know, William Wallace is... I mean, he's shown to have romantic relations with uh, Isabella of France, the wife of Edward II. Um, and it sort of implies that the future Queen, Queen of England is carrying the child of Wallace. But in reality, the pair never met. Um, she would have been just three years old and living in France, a complete embellishment. The face paint, the tartan, tartan hadn't been um, invented for 500 years in this, you know, a thousand years too late for Wode, the blue paint, and 500 years too early for Tartan. Again, fantastical embellishments. You could forgive those fantastical embellishments. But even the title of Braveheart. Braveheart was used to describe Robert the Bruce, uh, not uh, our boy Mel Gibson. There are some amazing, uh, there are some embellishments you understand, like, for example, the Battle of Austerlitz, which is uh, the battle scenes in this movie are perhaps the most amazing parts of the movie. And it is, like I said, a bit, um, it's a kind of a little bit depressing. Well, not depressing is not the right word, but that none of the politics are explained. Like, it doesn't make any attempt to explain the context of the French Revolution. It explains nothing about why Napoleon was, what he was doing in Egypt. It just sort of paints him again as this vulgar, um, you know, barbarian um, firing a cannon at the Sphinx, which again was, you know, said to be untrue. But I, I could understand the desire. Um, it's hard to resist that folkloric tale and trying to portray it for the silver screen. But the Battle of Austerlitz, I would really to believe that um, the armies um, of the Austro-Hungarian and Russian Empire, I think Prussian Empire, who were attacking the Russians, didn't know that they were skating across a huge frozen lake. 
Um, I think the reports of the battle are well known that, yes, there was some ice breaking and some soldiers obviously fell beneath the ice. But I can understand Ridley Scott's desire to make this huge dramatic scene of soldiers and and horses falling through the ice and the blood mixing with the icy water. This is an embellishment that you can kind of you can kind of understand. But that, as I said, the leaving out of any political context, uh, you could maybe forgive far less so. But the question remains, has the movie been sort of framed um, for the modern sort of culture war narrative that, you know, behind every great man, there's a greater woman, I suppose, is the kind of narrative that Napoleon leans on. It leans, as I said, into him being a bumbling, uh, dopey, kind of rather silly fool, which couldn't have been the case and isn't the case. Um, and she comes out of every scene. Josephine comes out of every scene as a stronger character. And you, I know what people are going to say. Some people are going to listen to this and go, oh, you know, you just sound like another a member of the manosphere crying your, you know, your male tears into your um, your cup of bitterness. But there are some points there to consider. As for many people, this will be their understanding of Napoleon. Now, there are lots of movies about Napoleon. There's one from the 1970s that I think is way, way better. Um, but there are many, many people out there who won't, you know, read Napoleonic history at school. Um, they won't read books about Napoleon. This will be their defining modern historical sense of Napoleon. And I think that um, culture in general in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s had competing voices who were perhaps as loud or had more access to influence both sides of a debate if somebody put, was portrayed in a movie in 1974 and somebody else said well I think that's false I think I somehow feel like there would be a parity of the amount of oxygen that were given to those debates or maybe that's wishful thinking on my behalf looking back through the past but this will be the defining modern historical document of Napoleon and as I said it portrays him as a um, a whimpering simp Good name for a sort of nerdy prog band, actually. You can have that if you want. Whimpering Simp. I can see the T-shirts already. And does this feed into the kind of culture war argument that we see all the time? Now, if you're like me, um, every time I come across something like a new um, TV show or a new doc uh, documentary series or, well, less so a documentary series, but maybe you're trying to watch some new scan noir series or you're trying to, um, trying to find something to watch to while away the wee hours and... You're getting constantly lectured. You're, you know, everything is constantly given uh, given to you um, in terms of equity and diversity, um, and not the storytelling. And you, the viewer, are lectured um, for your own close-mindedness, your own bigotry, your own. You know what I mean? Why wouldn't movies set in the 13th to the 16th century um, in medieval Europe be full of ethnic diversity? Well, they have to be. I mean, didn't um, Hollywood? say that nominees for the uh, the Oscars were now going to have to uh, toe the line with equity and diversity if they were going to be considered ECG scores, right? Well, coming soon to a social credit score system near you. But the point is that it's not hard to see how Napoleon sort of fits, sort of loosely fits into that narrative. It sort of fits into the narrative of every... Um, every time you turn on a new Netflix series that the white male characters in it are going to be either malevolent or bumbling fools. Um, and, of course, there are people from the other side of the argument who say that's entirely not true. But I can judge these things with my own eyes and ears. And I certainly can tell you that almost um, 
every new, well, not every, but an awful lot of new Netflix series I'll watch and within two, three, four, five minutes, okay, here we go, this is equity, diversity, and I'm about to get a lecture on politics, and I'm about to get a lecture on gender, I'm about to get a lecture. The series is designed to lecture you, the um, the viewer, when many people are just really, really tired of it. They're really, really sick of being lectured, of being told, um, you know, you should accept this, and if you don't, then you are X and Y. And this becomes more important than the narrative, becomes more important than the story, and that whatever anybody is trying to tell, the whole series and production is a vehicle for um, these political ideals. And so it's hard not to watch Napoleon and think to yourself, he can't have been this person. He can't have been um, this weak-willed, sort of slightly dopey, low-energy fool. Um, you know, kind of love-struck teenager fool throughout the whole thing. And it tells you nothing of his will and resolve on any other terms. Or maybe we just accept it, that this is really Scott's version of it. And this was Joaquin Phoenix's idea. He read the letters, perhaps from Josephine to um, Napoleon, and thought, this is the tone that he sets in his letters. And if you do read the letters, there is all absolutely no doubt an element of the love-struck love-struck puppy to um, Napoleon and he dutifully allows himself to be ruled over by the strength of her character for almost all of his life. I mean, I don't watch Doctor Who, but a friend of mine is very into Doctor Who and told me that in the newest episodes of Doctor Who, uh, the portrayal of Isaac Newton uh, in the new Doctor Who is that he's black and it's causing a big furore because, of course, Doctor Who is made by the BBC and the BBC is paid for by uh, taxpayers' money. They, they pay towards the upkeep of the, of the existence of the BBC. So perhaps it should remain impartial. Perhaps it should retell historical characters as they were and not reframe them in such a way. But then again, also, perhaps it's just playful. Perhaps it's just a reinterpretation and someone else can go and make their own version of history where they portray whoever they want, however they want. Although I have a feeling... If it was the other way around, there would be a slightly different narrative. We were going to start portraying, um, you know, historically um, ethnic characters throughout history as being white. There would be some more of a pushback. But that's just the place where society is, I think, in 2023. So the people pushing back against this image of Napoleon, it largely seems to be this manospheric um section of YouTube, section of the Internet, who are easily demonized by the other side of the... Um, by the other side of the fence. And it all seems a bit trivial and it seems a bit ridiculous because at the end of the day, it is actually just a movie. And if you don't want to see it, vote with your wallet. And that's what many people are doing, the whole go woke, go broke um, mantra. If you don't like how the movie is portrayed, well, then don't see it. I mean, but then again, um, I did pay and I did see it. And it sort of moved me neither way. I came away going, okay, six out of 10, some amazing battle scenes, um, skirting over huge periods of history it does mostly i think capture the you know the march the long retreat back from russia where um napoleon had 600,000 soldiers and came back i think with 40,000 but the russians it said burnt moscow before he got there but in the movie he gets there it's deserted and then he sort of has a night sleep that's interrupted by the whole city on fire. I get the reason why you would optically commit to that, but that's not I, that's not what happened. There's implications of a kind of a love tryst between 
um, Alexander and Josephine. Um, this, I think, never really happened either. At the end, the very wonderful Rupert Everett. Um, Rupert Everett did an amazing TV series about Lord Byron in the 1990s or 2000s. I think it's on YouTube. And um, Byron was always one of my literary sort of heroes, one of the first ever kind of mad, bad Lord Byron, sort of dangerous to know. Um, fascinating character. And if you can find it, uh, like I said, Rupert Everett portrays him or rather goes back through areas of his life and um, made a documentary about them. Brilliant. But Rupert Everett plays Wellington in Napoleon and kind of steals every scene with his sort of diabolically curled upper lip. But the meeting between them in the prow of the ship or whatever you want to say uh, never happened. Wellington never, they never met while Napoleon was busy eating his breakfast. And there was no cordial meeting where he said, off you go, son, off you go to the island of Elba. But yet the scene itself between these two actors is kind of electric. And because of the sort of strangely low energy Joaquin Phoenix portrayal, Rupert Everett steals every scene as the um, stiff upper lipped character of Wellington. Another thing which is really quite important is the fact that Josephine died in 1814 and Napoleon didn't return from Alba, the island, um, until 1815. So he returned after she had died. He wasn't making his way uh, to see her. And again, this sort of speaks to the level of importance that she acquires throughout the movie. In some ways, it kind of feels a little bit like the movie. Um, she vies for being the central character in the movie with him. And in, in some regards, uh, is even more important. Like I said, she steals every scene by being the dominant character. But certainly, um, the, the movie concentrates far more on their relationship than, as I said, anything to do with politics. I mean, Napoleon was the man who reinstated slavery in the islands of occupation they had in the Caribbean. Um, and that's glossed over. It doesn't say anything about that. I mean, I do appreciate that the movie doesn't judge him entirely. I mean, it makes him out to be a bumbling sort of lovesick buffoon, but it doesn't, um, you know, portray him as this evil tyrant or dictator because it does place him in the context of the time where he was among many, um, you know, warring factions or um, army leaders of the time. But he does, as I said, declare himself emperor of France. And he did would seem like Charlemagne before him placed the crown upon his own head um, defying tradition but again the movie takes huge liberties with the character of Josephine to invent new scenes and the relationship between them what happened to his son you kind of get no idea of that either I mean, some of you may have seen uh, this short clip. It went viral, got doing the rounds of Mads Mikkelsen, a famous Scandinavian actor. And it's about his new film, The Promised Land, which he stars in, which is set in the 1750s in Denmark. And uh, he's asked by a reporter during, uh, I guess, a press conference about the lack of diversity in the movie. And the reporter kind of goes, because there's new rules in Hollywood, he gets to that before he's shut down. Mickelson laughs and shuts him down, more or less, and just goes, what are you talking about? This is set in Denmark in the 1750s. But this is the uncomfortable moment where um, history and the historical accuracies meet 
the modern expectation of diversity and equity and um, the attempt to uh, you know, alter the historical timeline and make it more palatable for audiences in 2023. Well, except for the movies you want to sell in Asia, but that's, uh, uh, that's a whole different argument of what the Chinese do and don't like. But just to explain, what I mean when I say these things is that um, in May, the Oscars committee announced new representation and inclusion standards for a film to be eligible for any award, um, though it applies solely for the best picture category. The standards which come into effect next year are designed to encourage equal representation on and off screen to better reflect the diversity of the movie going and movie making audience. Um, they require that the film must meet the criteria of either having at least one of the lead actors or significant supporting actors or that 30% of the secondary roles are from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group. So that really means that if you are setting a movie uh, historically in, for example, 15th century um, Europe or 16th century Ireland, if you were, say, to make a movie about the Norman invasion of Ireland, just off the top of my head, that you would need all of those things if you were willing or you wanted to be considered eligible for any of those uh, any of those awards. Now, it really depends. Is that going to knock down to are the Irish Film Board going to require these things? Are the, um, you know, the are the people who give out money and grants uh, for people to make movies, are they going to insist on the same grants? And is it a kind of form of ECG scoring? Actually, I've said that a couple of times. It's not ECG, it's ESG scores. What am I talking about? Um, and what I mean by that is, are these requirements going to be, um, you know, start to, you will start to slowly, will you start to see them slowly creep in uh, across all areas of the arts from which might mean you just don't get the funding to make the movie that you want to make about the time period you want to make because that time period doesn't fit into our values of 2023. Does Napoleon actually reflect some of those values? Not really. I, I, I tend to err on the side that really Scott can tell whatever story he wants to. Um, and he tells it rather uh, in a rather haphazard, messy, chaotic kind of way where he concentrates from audience audiences about the romantic relationship between Josephine and Napoleon and tells it in a rather um, farcical way. But he concentrates on that instead of the politics or setting the scenes of some of the set pieces. It feels like a very rushed movie. Does it, as I said, fit into the tribalism and counter-war, counter-cultural sort of, um, the cultural war debate? Yes, it kind of does. And again, I'm not entirely sure whether that's by accident or design. It feels to me throughout the movie that it's a little bit more by accident that it falls into these things, that Joaquin Phoenix, to reading maybe the letters, decided that this um, was the way he was going to play Napoleon. Uh, this sort of low energy kind of, as I said, this low energy buffoon um, who falls asleep in meetings as a 20 something and doesn't seem to pay attention to anything rather than concentrate on enlightenment politics or the overthrowing of the monarchical systems or the importance of the French Revolution or whatever else. It doesn't reach for high ideals. It doesn't reach for explanations. It doesn't really it doesn't really explain even who the different armies are who are fighting each other. You get to see different uniforms and different flags, but it doesn't really explain uh, much of the context of the time. And that, I think, really means that probably these things are more, uh, as I said, accident than design that they fit into the modern um, culture war narrative, which everybody wants to try and find in everything. So maybe at the end of the day, it's just... 
a bit of an average film. Anyway, I just thought I would talk a little bit today about exactly that. Should movies, historical movies, have... Um, uh, should they try and portray historical accuracies? The answer is, well, yes and no. No and yes. Um, Vote with your wallet if you don't want to go and see it. All right, Napoleon. That, my friends, is the end of episode 180-something or other, and I'm going to leave you with um, a few minutes of Behiak. Have a listen, and if you like what you hear, follow the links underneath in the description. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.